Welcome to the ColbyCast, episode 188. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie and I are joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Dr. Majors is a psychiatrist, professor, co-founder of Optimal Work, along with many other roles and accomplishments. With his background in cognitive behavioral therapy, Dr. Majors explains how there are many truths in psychiatry and neuroscience that are in line with our Catholic faith. In particular, how some of the concepts of reframing, mindfulness, and challenge are important steps in our lives of walking with Christ. I think that you'll find Dr. Major's words of wisdom to be the perfect start to a new year. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom of four lads and lasses, liturgical musician, popcorn, and podcast fanatic. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and chief homeschooling officer for Colby Academy. Hi, Stephen. What's a good word today? Improvisation. I don't know that it's going to have anything to do with this, but as you asked that question, I realized that coming out of all the meetings today, I didn't have a more... Um, Prayed, prayed upon. Uh, normally, I try to think about and pray about those words, but I'm just going to have to Im- improvise right now. Well, let's go with you. You have accumulated a certain amount of um, prayer and preparation in that regard, so that this one must be the one that is meant to be today. Since be appropriate, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> okay, okay. It's my great privilege to get to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Kevin Majors. Dr. Majors, welcome to the Colby Cast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to to get to visit with you. I've um, I am in the habit of not really giving lengthy introductions to our guests because I like to have them do that themselves. I'll just set this up by saying I learned of you from a Colby alumna named Aviva Lund, who has been on the Colby Cast. She's episode twenty six, and also we hear from her. On episode 160, which is where she mentions that she's coming, she is now working for you at Optimal Work after she finished her undergraduate degree. So, when she mentioned that, I I, I thought, well, wow, Aviva must is going to work there. I want to find out more about that. And after lots of uh, listening to your podcast and reading about the the work you're doing in, in all sorts of places, I was very grateful that you accepted our invitation to come talk to us. So, would you please tell us about yourself and your background and things like that? Sure. Well, just to say um, thank you all for the, this opportunity. And I'm so grateful that Optimork has Aviva Lund working for us. Mm-hmm. So we, it's, we're so privileged to have her intelligence and enthusiasm, and she's so capable. So I, I think she's going to do great things with us. And one of the things is introducing us here today. So I'm a psychiatrist. My I have a private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, for the last... Oh, 13 years or so. I've been teaching at Harvard Medical School. So I have a class there every week on cognitive behavioral therapy. So I teach the psychiatry residents. They've already gotten their MD and now they're specializing in psychiatry. So I get them halfway through their third year to halfway through their fourth year of that training. And I teach them how to do cognitive behavioral therapy. So I uh, just had a fantastic class. Uh, this, I mean, meaning the last year with this one group of students that were you know, residents, they were so good. And we had our last class today, which is a little bit sad. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but I'm looking forward to I, every January, I get a new group. So, and then I see them every week and direct their cases. Uh, anyway, that's a great, that's a great joy. 
Uh, and so then I also have this company, Optimal Work, that I run. And Optimal Work came out of my practice and my teaching. Uh, my specialty was always anxiety disorders. And I trained with Aaron Beck at the Beck Institute back in the um, early 2000s uh, and received wonderful cognitive behavioral therapy training back then and then started applying it in my practice, in my teaching. And just to say, fast forward, that's what became optimal work. Now, also, you know, I'm sure your audience would like to know a little bit about my faith background. So I was uh, born, and, born and raised Catholic uh, from a very practicing family. I remember going with my mom to daily mass when I was like probably before kindergarten. Uh, and my, my father was a very holy man, I think. I think he was a saint. Uh, definitely the most humble and patient person I ever knew. And I remember when I was probably around 14 years old, he taught me to try to turn my work into prayer. And he said, at the beginning, when you have a page, just write JMJ for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and ask them to help you to do this for, you know, for God. Um, and I remember back then, um, I was you know, uh, just testing out the intellectual waters. Uh, and I remember I was saying, well, that's absurd. Because to pray is to, is to have a conversation with God. Mm -hmm. But how can you talk to God when you're praying? And I, I, I don't think my dad even explained it back then. I think his attitude is always, that's fine, wait and see. You like, you'll like, do it, practice it, and you'll learn. Uh, and so it wasn't any kind of debate or anything. But I just remember that moment. Because that became actually a driving force of my life. How do I love God in the task that I'm doing, like in med school, studying for this test, in this class, writing this paper, um, now seeing patients, teaching. How do I love God by doing that well? And I got to learn from San Jose Maria Escrava uh, this idea that you know, we, we can get to the point where love, the love we have for God and the effort we put into our work become the same thing that we love God through our work by giving him our best. That's how, in fact, we can be contemplatives in an hour of work. Because you can learn to have the full presence of God while working. And so in a way that like set me on a path when I was, I probably discovered that when I was 16 or so, you know, uh, on, on, to see that in an hour of work, all psychology comes into play. All the best psychology comes to our aid but also then is completed by the faith. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, how how did things line up for you as a person at that age to have that be where you landed at that moment in time? Like how did, just uh, mm -hmm. marveling at the the factors, that, uh, the grace that was there to to set that up for you at that moment. That's Yeah, I remember when I was in, uh, my sophomore year of high school, uh, I two things like happened at the same time. One is that out of the blue, I asked my dad to teach me how to pray the rosary, which we had done sometimes, but I just didn't know exactly how to do it on my own. And so, uh, so he taught me one night. Later, like a week later, I realized I asked him on the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary without knowing it. Uh, and I've prayed the rosary every day since then. 
Um, and I got a book called True Devotion to Mary uh, from my local parish. Um, I actually still have the very book. Uh, I never returned it. Instead, I, I found an identical copy and I mailed in the identical copy because this was the book that was like the beginning of my love for Our Lady. And so it was a huge thing as a, I don't know, I guess that would be in the beginning of my sophomore year of, of uh, high school. But at the same time, I went to the uh, public library in Edina, Minnesota and found, I went to the philosophy section and I was rather overconfident, I think, back then. Uh, so hopefully less so now. Uh, and so I went, I wanted to find the most challenging book just to see what it's like. And so I went to the philosophy section and I grabbed the biggest, thickest book, which happened to be an old edition of the Summa Theologica. And how <laughs> Southdale, this, this was like this, this one library, how they happened to have Thomas Aquinas. So I was shocked that, oh, wait, this is a Catholic saint. And I was still very Catholic and interested. And so I took the book home and I started reading it every day. And every day, like before I'd go to bed, I'd read it for some time. And then I continued that basically every day of my life since then. So I've been reading Thomas Aquinas constantly, just working through all his works that are available in English. Uh, so I'm getting to the commentaries on Aristotle. So I don't know what I'll do. Those are a little dry. Uh, <laughs> But the um, but his commentaries on scripture are incredible, and then all the disputed questions and the different sume. So I think the um, that was to me like I would I became like a little child at the feet of a master teacher, you know. And that's where I've tried to say then my whole life since then, you know, to be really deeply drinking in the the clarity of Saint Thomas, and. The beauty of his system is that it is so open to all truth and can see the consistency in what you might think are very diametrically opposed different kinds of thoughts. But unless it's heretical, he found a way to actually unite it. And that became like the motivating spirit. I had the sense right when I picked him up that I need this teacher to teach me how to reason and to learn from him how to reason. Uh, and so I think that helped a lot to be open to truth wherever I find it, you know, that as long as it's not directly against the faith, in fact, it's going to be, it's going to be an argument in favor of the faith and that all truth is going to end up leading us in the right direction. So then I got to psychiatry and I found that so much of the work of psychology that's done is completely compatible with the vision of, of St. Thomas. And that, yes, there are things that can be misleading and that have misled. So I, I wouldn't minimize that. But there is so much there. And so I discovered cognitive behavioral therapy. I discovered Viktor Frankl. And these, and these became like my early sources, even in high school, in, well, college. I discovered Frankl in college uh, to see that there is good in psychology. Yeah. I find that's also fascinating. Just like I said, how that, how that lined up to, to, how God drew you in that direction. And, and now here you are doing so much good for so many folks. I, I understand that you went to the university of Dallas and we had the, yeah. the pleasure of visiting with Dr. Stanford, the president of UD here fairly that. recently. So, yeah. yeah, so that was great. I'd love to hear a bit about that and, and how, and then onward from there and tell us more of the story. Yeah. So university of Dallas for me, was, it was just a, it was a, it was a huge discovery of the tradition 
I went to a uh, public high school in in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, and so I didn't get that much exposure to the Western tradition. I, got, I actually got more than I think many other people in public high school because we had some great teachers there um, that were in fact, they were very encouraging of my reading interests. And, and so that helped in high school. But at UD, it was just, it was, I loved it there. And so I um, majored for the most of my time in philosophy, and then eventually I switched to politics, only because at UD politics is the study of human nature, so it's not it's not political science. So and so I, and uh, there's this one particular class being taught by Jack Painter, who's a wonderful professor there, uh, and I wanted to take that class. There are three books that have all of philosophy in them: so Plato's Republic, Augustine's City of God, and Rousseau's Emile. And so this was going through the Emil, and I, you know, I'm not like that um, sympathetic to to Rousseau, but the way he structured the course, you, it was like a review of all of philosophy in regard to human nature, going back to the pre-Socratics and then moving forward, and then using that to dialogue with the Emil, so that to you know to, to highlight it. Um, things that maybe it got right, and then to highlight also the things that didn't. So that was a wonderful course. Uh, it was in my, oh boy, it would have been, I think even my uh, my senior year that, uh, so I was interested, I was pre-med growing up, for some reason, I always wanted to be a doctor. And so I had this in my mind that I'll, that I'll be a doctor, but I also loved philosophy. So when I first got to UD, I didn't take any particular courses in, um, in that were pre-med. I was just taking the general philosophy courses and all the, the core curriculum. That I remember well. There was, it was in my freshman year in February, um, I went to mass and it was, I went there a little bit early. Uh, and so I was the only one there. Uh, and the, this very ancient Dominican, he, he must have been like 90 at the time. You know, and so to me, it was like he was uh, ancient. Still, it's fairly old. Uh, and yeah. he uh, he asked me if I would do the readings. So I okay, great. So I stood up and I was like re reviewing the readings before mass. And then um, he came up to me and he said, are you good at math? <laughs> and I was like, out oh, of the blue. I'd never talked to him before. And I'm like, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I had like, you know, I'd done really well in math always. And I okay. took university courses when I was in high school at, you know, uh, in math. So, um, and so like that always was great. So like, yeah. And he like, oh, great. And he started walking away and then he came back. Are you good at sciences? Like, uh, yeah, I've always been good at science. He said, have you ever thought about being a doctor? Wow. So, well, in fact, I had always thought about it, but since I got here, I haven't really been pursuing it so much this year. I'm a freshman. He said, I think you should think about being a doctor. We need Catholic doctors. Wow. And then he left. But that was like at the right moment for me to, I was just selecting, must have been a little bit late in February because I just, I was just selecting my courses for the next fall. So I thought I'll at least take the general biology class and see how that goes. And then that went really well. And then I took the whole pre-med stuff, but now it was, it was later and I was getting to the point where I actually must have been junior year because I had to make a decision. Am I going to take the MCAT or not? And I was on a retreat uh, before, uh, uh, and it was actually the Feast of Christ the King. I remember 
this professor uh, came up to me. Uh, he's also making the retreat. Uh, and he asked me, um, so um, philosophy or psychiatry? Because I had been talking more with him, like I was interested in medicine still and in medicine, maybe in psychiatry, but I also love philosophy. And so, and I said, well, I don't know. I haven't made any decisions on that. And then he, his name was Jerry Wegemer. He was a Thomas More scholar. And he said, well, Thomas More loved philosophy, but he also could do law. And he saw that what England needed in his day were good lawyers that had integrity. And then he said, I think that what we need today are Catholic psychiatrists. And I'm like, this sounds like a good argument to me. That sounds right. So I was kind of like, basically, great, sign me up. But it was like the next day I had to make the decision to do the MCAT or not. And then so I signed up to do the MCAT that spring, and it went really well. So I was able to get into UT Southwestern, uh, which is a fantastic med school in Dallas. Um, and then I stayed there for, I did my med school there, and I loved med school. Med school is like a four-year honeymoon. I, it was, <laughs> I loved everything about it. And then I went into my residency there in psychiatry. And then I was for five years on the faculty there and then switched um, to come up to Boston and to join the faculty at Harvard uh, in 2010. So that's the. That's, that's amazing. What a story. When I, when I first started listening to your podcast, I didn't realize at the time that you were a Catholic, but I kept hearing some language that's like, that's not, it, it kind of tipped me off. Like I was hearing about virtues and, um, even just the, the tenets of of showing up well for people and and things, I had this inkling like there's more, you know, that that kind of drew me in deeper. And I and then once I discovered you having been on the Doctor Doctor podcast, which Doctor Andrew Malali has been on our on our podcast once mm -hmm. before, I will link that in our show notes. Um, I found your episodes there, and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, I, I just appreciated how you were able to to live your Catholic faith in the in the wider world and along the way in my in my listening and, and learning more about you i have i've come to appreciate your the approach you the thoughts you have on integrating catholicism and psychology and psychiatry and the psychological benefits of catholicism wondered if you might say a bit more about that yeah i think that in some ways you can see how um the theological virtues do not remove challenges from our lives Mm -hmm. But they allow these challenges to bring out our best. So that what I see as being the most central skills that cognitive behavioral therapy teaches people, those skills are three. Reframing, which means seeing what had been in a narrow context seen as a threat, widening the view to see it as an opportunity. So reframing is the essence of cognitive therapy. It's the cognitive part. And reframing is this intellectual discovery of how something right now in front of us, a challenge, actually is an opportunity. Right? The second one is mindfulness. Mindfulness works in a whole different way. It's about attention and bringing attention and being able to hold it in the present moment in what actually is instead of our thoughts and concern, our images, the talking in our head, which in a way is what is not. So mindfulness holds us in what is. And then challenge is the third part. That's the behavioral part. 
of actually leaning into a challenge and embracing it, internalizing it. Okay, and that's the essence of behavioral therapy. So behavioral therapy is all about helping people to set challenges for themselves. So if you're doing it for anxiety, what is the supposed threat that they can start gradually embracing and then increase how they lean into it? And you get this momentum, this kind of behavioral momentum. Okay, well, what the theological virtues do is they stabilize those habits so that faith can make reframing into a permanent habit. Because faith stabilizes the intellect so that it can always have the widest view, the view that entail, that includes eternity. And the Catholic faith, I believe, is unique in its power to, to buttress, to perfect reframing. So that every challenge, no matter how great it is, even the most painful things that could happen, all suffering and even death, can be viewed in a wider context. Really, in what other, in what other faith is there a sense that maybe, maybe I mean, there it could be in some ways. I think that the Catholic faith does it very deeply. A sense that uh, whatever we suffer in this life actually can be glory in the next life. Yeah, and it can be atonement in this life. It can replace atonement in the next. So it can be embraced. It can be loved. It can be loved as atoning, and it can be, and that transforms the suffering itself into glory. So that death itself can be swallowed up in victory. So there's this deep sense that no matter what the problem is, that it can work in eternal good in us. That you know, the passing goods of little outcomes we want to accomplish. Well, okay, those those can be done, but they need to be put into a bigger context to give them meaning. And so the faith gives us meaning. The faith gives us ideals, and the highest of all ideals is charity. So the ultimate meaning of any ch challenge is how to grow in love through it, how to grow in love, especially for God, you know, and then for those closest to you. So the faith shows us all the ideals we would need to reframe by. Because ultimately, whatever challenge we face, it's giving us some unique opportunity to strengthen ourselves in some unique way. And if it were a strength we already had, it wouldn't be a challenge. The very fact that something is challenging is just a sign that this is where our growth lies. But the faith gives us all these ideals and the assurance that everything, even death, can be reframed. So I see reframing as actually the constant living of faith. It's how, because it's not like we have to be constant. Well, actually, maybe we do need to be reaffirming in our minds dogmas. <laughs> I think there are probably some good dogmas that we have to continually come back to and reframe and put in our mind. But it's not so much a speculative intellect. It's more the practical that, that we can, you know, um, I sometimes would say that complaining is practical atheism. Because complaining means that you're just not seeing the meaning. You're not seeing actually the quid divinum, the divine something hidden in this. But we know that underlying every challenge, in fact, there's this divine something. And so the faith gives us the assurance that it's always there. And in doing that, it perfects the intellect. So again, it doesn't remove every challenge, but it allows us to see a way forward. That even the things that seem toughest to us can be good for us.
and even the most inexplicable, well, they will have a value that can only be seen perhaps on the other side. So that's faith. <laughs> I love that. Um, it seems to me that as Catholics, oftentimes we we live kind of in a dichotomy that way, right? Because we are saying, we know that God is all powerful, all knowing, we have this ideal. And then you get upset because somebody cuts you off in traffic on the on the way to, to the grocery store or whatever. Yeah. And, and somehow this is this this is upsetting of the world or even really more tragic or more really difficult things. But you know, if if God is those things and he loves yeah. us, then it seems like we ought to well, I can say this intellectually. I don't always live this, of course, but then we ought to know always that God's in control here. So and he's and he loves you. So yeah. Like you're saying, reframe it and see what is it that what is it that the, is that's happening here? What what am I? What challenge do I need to encounter here? Perhaps, but yeah, this is this is perhaps a strange way of saying it. I'll just say it: uh, in the kingdom of faith, all the people believe, but the aristocracy never complains, and the royalty see God in everything. I think that's the path. So we have to go from believing to actually operationalizing it so that when we're tempted to complain, we instead respond to an upward call for our nature to come better and to use this complaint to actually bring out our best. And that's how we gradually do it. It's not by repressing it, it's by flipping it. Reframing doesn't take effort. Reframing takes light. So we have to be like looking for the light to see this in a new way. But it's not about pushing through with the will. It's leading with the intellect. It's actually more true to see challenges as opportunities for new kinds of growth. And the ultimate opportunity is death, because it's the last opportunity we have. And to see death as, a as the goal, we want to, and so we are actually practicing approaching it by learning how to reframe little sacrifices along the way so that they bring out our best. I also think there's something that um, we often think too in a too utilitarian a way about virtues. So as if they just help us to accomplish good on earth. But I think when you see the greatest saints, their virtues were not actualized fully in their life. I think that the more we see that there are, every opportunity gives us these ways of growing in virtue, I think of virtues more as what we wear eternally. So we build them now, we knit them now, but we actually put like, we don't really put them on until, until eternity. And so there are all these hidden little times where like, does it matter if we're patient when someone cuts us off? Well, maybe not in a utilitarian view, it doesn't matter in this moment. Um, although maybe there's people who'd make an, uh, some kind of cortisol argument that you don't need to excessively raise your cortisol by getting you know stuck in frustration. Um, but really, I think it's that, no, there are these hidden ways of growing we get hour by hour so that uh, we can learn to accomplish great growth in the most ordinary hour of our day. So we, and it's like, you can take an hour and learn to see that the, the divine possibility that it contains. 
there's this thing in, when people are learning mindfulness, it's called the raisin exercise. And <clears throat> so you have people take a raisin and first spend like 30 seconds, just looking at it from every angle, you know, and then, then you have people smell it. And then eventually after some minutes, they put it in their mouth and then they bite in. The idea is to get people to slow down and experience reality. Um, I actually, I don't know if I've ever led people through that, but that idea can be applied to any ordinary task. Imagine you hold it in your hand, you view it from different angles. You try to see what are the possibilities this task is giving me? Like, What are the challenges that will come up in this task that I can lovingly embrace? So it's like love is waiting to become incarnated in us through this work that we're about to do. Even the most ordinary thing, even if it's like, I think we can learn to put an, any ordinary task on a bit of a pedestal. Think about it. Now, we can probably just do this once a day. I'm not saying we can do this all day long. It would be, but we should do it from time to time. Or in the morning, if you have quiet time for prayer in the morning, take at least one thing coming up that day and start to think of, okay, if I were to maximally love God in that task, what would be the highest thing I could stretch for? What would be the, the challenge I could lovingly embrace? Because every hour has a challenge and that challenge is the cross and we can lovingly embrace that cross. And that actually brings out our best. So like that's in a way reframing and mindfulness and challenge all combined. And in optimal work, we talk about doing a golden hour, you know, which is an hour that you just go through those steps to see the possibilities. That's the reframe. To be pausing enough to gather your attention to it, and then to actually stretch yourself through the task with the, some steps that challenge you. So you can learn to set the stage for an hour of work. One of the side effects of that is when you're working at your best, <clears throat> you go right into flow. Flow is the highest state of, of, of human functioning. So it's the, at the natural level. So when you're in flow, you lose track of time to some extent, but you have all the time you need for what you're doing. And you can keep in your heart the ultimate reason why you're doing this while you're in flow. And you can't do that in ordinary, like if you're not in flow. So there's actually flow becomes more and more contemplative. That it allows us, flow is what allows us to learn to be contemplatives in ordinary life. Well, I'm seeing so many of the pitfalls as you're clearly laying this out. And it's like, okay, well, there's the one of the pitfalls is just like, well, as we were starting to talk about, God has a purpose. So there's suffering. So just, you know, like you said, accept that suffering, but don't, but without reframing it, that just like you were mm -hmm. saying, pushes it down, but doesn't move beyond. And it doesn't refocus you on taking that perspective of, looking at it from the different angles, but only in how this is causing me to suffer. Oftentimes when you're, you're doing that, where as you, as you were explaining the raisin example and look and taking the time to kind of look at things, it was bringing me back to some of your stories about, about like, okay, you've got this, like, I want to do the hardest philosophy. And then there's, there's clearly something even at that point for you that you're, or at least there's an openness, a listening for for something. So God providentially puts the biggest book of St. Thomas in your library, you know, but 
but still you are there is something there that you're here you're that you there's an openness to to hearing what god is telling you that he wants from you at that point even if it's not explicit it seems to me when with what you've said that's right and i think that learning to sense the presence of god uh is the best use of mindfulness so if you think of mindfulness the catholic approach to mindfulness is uh summed up in one word metaphysics so to understand the metaphysics of thomas aquinas is to see that our act of being is never a possession that we hold as our own every instant it's given to us anew by god so we're in fact all the good in us is created at every instant so if we can feel ourselves being to feel the it's like to feel your whole body all at once to feel it's to try to become aware of that being that's the closest we can come to actually touching god so he is you know interior intimo meo at superior you know, supermo meo that he is more interior to us than we are to ourselves and higher than our highest part um so that uh, learning to experience the the presence of God at that level of being. This is one of the great insights of Teresa of Avila. You know, she um, discovered this, and then said that she spent an entire year just trying to practice attending to God, holding her like in the center of her being as the source. Uh, she even went to one of her confessors because she had this 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 um, qualm, which is, um, we know from Thomas Aquinas and others, that uh, we cannot have absolute certainty if we have charity. Okay, that's an interesting fact that when Thomas Aquinas was, <clears throat> our Lord appeared to him once and said, uh, to ask me for whatever you, any question you have. And the one question Thomas Aquinas asked was, do I have charity? And our Lord told him, yes, you do. Because Thomas had taught that you could only know that by direct revelation. So she said that since we can't have absolute certainty, we can have moral certainty. In fact, we need to because we have to know we are morally certain that we're in a state of grace to receive communion. So there's a moral kind of certainty there. But the absolute, that's what she was wondering. And her confessor said, so she's like, so if I can't know that, can I still attend to God inside of me? And, he, and it was explained to her, yes, because he's always inside of you creating you. And that gave her such such confidence in seeking God. So in this sense, we can see a different version of hope than most people I think are aware of. So instead of thinking of hope as about the future primarily, we can think of it as being primarily about eternity. And it's about God eternally upholding the present moment. So the present moment starts to feel like a very thin veil that's between us and God. And as we learn in uh, the letter to the Hebrews, that hope pierces the veil of the present moment to anchor us in the inner sanctuary where God dwells. So there's this eternal now upholding the present now. So that hope is what actually perfects and stabilizes mindfulness. It holds us in the present moment by anchoring it in eternity. And it does it in a way, perfectly congruent to how faith perfects reframing. You know, faith keeps the intellect true. 
to the truth of each moment. And then hope does that at the level of attention insofar as this is actually perfecting a faculty called memory. But memory in Augustine and in Aquinas is not simply about the past, but it's actually has, it's, it's the part of the mind whose object, the power of the mind whose object is being. That's different than intellect, who's the power of the mind whose object is truth. So it's an interesting fact that there is so, so, so Aquinas lays this out in one question too. So that in that sense, you can, at any rate, it gets into an um, interesting thing about, you know, is it just intellect and will or is it intellect, memory, and will? And Aquinas says both. So he, at different times, will say it each way. Um, and then this gets to charity, which is the virtue that perfects the will. So, and that ultimately is the virtue that allows us to embrace a challenge for the love of God, to internalize the challenge. So if we can help people to see the full truth of a moment and to be fully present to it, and then to seek to love God in it, that would be the very greatest thing you could do, the simultaneous operating of faith and hope and charity. But those are the three steps that make up a golden hour. So at the human level, they lead to flow. At the supernatural, they lead to contemplation. But it's the, it's the same operating of it. And we can get better at each of those skills. So you can get better at reframing by practicing it more frequently. So in optimal work, we have this tool called the reframer. Is one of the tools uh, that we have there. And that is meant to walk people through how to reframe anything, any difficulty that you're facing, and to help people think through it in a, in a new way. Uh, there's a lot of ways that people can grow in mindfulness. I actually think that with mindfulness, it, we don't have to do anything complicated. As long as we can drop anchor and pause and seek like to experience our own being, and God upholding it. And to try to do that, just it would just take a few times a day. And it doesn't take that many seconds to, to be able to do it. Gradually, we would get more and more attuned to God's presence to the point where we can keep it, it we can keep experiencing it no matter what we're doing. You're writing, you're talking, you're shopping, you're, you, can, you can stay tuned into it. And again, that, that, experiencing God upholding us, that's ultimately the foundation of hope, that we can rely on him and entrust in him. But that's what keeps him present to us as well. Anyway, I'm going, I, if any questions you all have, I'm happy, happy to hear them. I'm, I'm just soaking, soaking this all in. It's, it's, uh, it's you know, thinking, how, how can I do this? You know, it is, you're telling us how to do to a certain yeah. extent here in a, in a brief way, but it's, I remember giving a talk on this once, and at the end, the first question—it was like the first question—someone stood up and said, "Now, can you make this practical for us?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. "To me, it seemed practical all the way through." Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Yes, I—I've been thinking a lot. I've—I've I've learned so much from listening to your various uh, topics that you've presented, and I really have taken to heart the idea of reframing and and been thinking about the whatever challenges ahead, whatever anxieties are um, either before me or my children, my family, my loved ones that I'm somehow uh, involved in, in maybe hopefully supporting them through that, that this idea of reframing, I've really been, I've really been working on a lot. And, but as you've been talking just now, I've, it came to my mind that 
the piece that go there's a piece that goes with that and that's acceptance that you talk about also along with the reframing the acceptance of this is not like this is how it is like that kind of despondent like this is how it it's not that it's this like that acceptance of reality and that seems to me to also be an act of faith as well like okay that god sees fit for this in some in some way then there's some reason Mm -hmm. for it and um just that latter piece of the the faith dimension of it has just come to me as you've been talking so that kind of takes me to a a new place as i've been trying to integrate all of this that i'm absorbing from you so that's a real gift yeah and i think sometimes people people might wonder like why not lead with the spiritual and I, my, uh, this is just my understanding, and there could be other ways of doing it. And I'm not opposed to other ways of doing it. But as far as what I do, and, and I know Sharif is you know, Eunice, who's my co-founder with Optimal Work, uh, we have the sense that it's more charitable. It's being more understanding with people who don't agree with us on everything, you know, to present what they can accept. And then for those Catholics who want more, well, one, the Catholics will already see how consonant this is with the faith. So I think that when they hear that, you know, like us talking, just from a purely secular point of view, we have a podcast called the Optimal Work Podcast, and then we have the website. So we we intentionally keep those open to everyone of any of any beliefs, because I don't want to not help someone I could have helped, because there is some stumbling block that I didn't know about. And people's experience of religion is complicated because their experience of other people in their life is complicated. And so who knows what the baggage is? And I just don't want to go there and I don't want to cause anyone pain or harm if I don't know it in advance. Like So even with my patients, I generally speaking, unless I know definitely that they're, you know, like very practicing, I would don't really find like that I, I don't lead with the spiritual for sure. That's for sure. Um, even in psychology itself though, what you just mentioned about being able to fully accept what is and the situation as it is, perhaps you could we would complete that by saying, while also being committed to growing. Mm-hmm. And so that is the basis of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is considered to be a third wave form of CBT. And the founder, Steve Hayes, um, said, you could summarize acceptance and commitment in one word, love. So and it's accepting what is and people as they are, and then being committed to ourselves being the best we can and having our behavior shaped by our ideals. I mean, isn't that, that's incredibly good. And so when I read things of acceptance and commitment therapy as a Catholic, I don't have to do a lot of translating. So it's like, no, this this is all. So what's true and helpful, what's been shown, you know, in studies to be effective, all it just, it just fits. Yeah, and but people are reading psychology, and there's, I don't know, um, sometimes things of a more Freudian nature. There's a lot of baggage with them, you know, and so there can be mischief in it. Uh, <laughs> there's another uh, something called DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. Dialectical is just, there's a dialectical tension between acceptance and change. That's the dialect. So like that's the dialectical part of it. So it's the same idea as acceptance and commitment. There's partly you accept it and partly you commit to change. It's the same as love, according to St. Francis de Sales. 
you know, it has one movement of complacency, totally accepting someone, and one movement of beneficence, trying to help them to grow. So these go way back. And I think that, so St. Francis of Sales had the whole vision, but you also find it then in these more modern secular things. I think I think all that framework really lays the foundation for to to the uh, crack you just made about the, the practical side of it. I think it's all very practical because it gives it a whole underpinning and a reason for doing what we're doing in the first place. As our second semester is beginning, um, Colby's well known for its rich and challenging curriculum, and so I, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts for for us, some basic principles of your golden hour, as you've been explaining it, that can apply to. Um, both the students who are any any of our Colby students, but more like on the high school, late middle school side, who are really in the they they've got it's to the point where they really have to take ownership of of their studies and their learning and 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 all of that, and with the support of their parents, whether they're online or um, offline homeschool students, mm-hmm. and also um so there's that piece. Also wondering if you have some thoughts for the homeschooling parents who would like to make incorporate this to help them be at their best for the, their families as they're as they're going mm-hmm. through their their work you think about that well just some ideas and uh but that as they as they as they come to mind one is that the most formative um the, the central virtue to help what children to grow i believe is generosity and teaching kids from a young age to be generous, it includes everything else. So it's uh, it's the part of magnanimity that's fully in the will. So it's what leads people to transcend themselves, to exceed themselves, to grow. So so for kids at the youngest age to help them to be generous, right? Okay, is to is to show that yes, to be generous until it hurts. So to be generous with your siblings, to be generous with with the poor, to be to be to be finding ways to love the act of being generous. As kids get older, what they need to see is that they need to be generous with God by using the talents that they've been given as fully as they can. And in each hour of work, if they're going to be truly generous, they're going to see how can I stretch myself in this hour in some new way? How can I get better at something than I was before? So the reframe sets up this look, this looking on the, on the part of the mind, like, okay, how can this somehow bring out my best? If kids can learn, if, and, and then if, 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 if particularly as they get older and then they get into high school, you know, that they need to learn to work better than the best in a sense like that that in fact that's what god needs he needs people of his own everywhere in the world doing the best that they can to actually lead it so that means we have to learn to exceed ourselves in our studies to to, to learn to see in each subject to not have any fixed concepts about oneself okay so Carol Dweck is a wonderful researcher, and her her stuff on growth mindset is so helpful. You know that to see that whatever you think you're not good at, if we work together, I could prove that you can become very good at it. I believe in the primordial gift of human nature that is perfectible in an infinite number of ways, 
and that people can get better at things. What, what we can't do is write off the, the opportunities to grow as being off limits. I'm just not that kind of person. This just isn't my, you know, I'm just not a math person. Uh, so, so I think that, I mean, I'm concerned when I see how apathetic and checked out so many young people are today because there's so much that they have that could be fostered. Um, I also see what the things that plague young people, anxiety, which is in the end all about reframing. So attention deficit disorder, which is all about mindfulness, uh, addictive behaviors, which is all about embracing challenges. So I think that there, in fact, there are these, They what ends up if we don't learn how to stretch ourselves in the right way, if we don't learn how to reframe and to be mindful and to challenge ourselves, how to bring them into an hour of work and then repeatedly practice them, we will end up learning them when we deal with anxiety or attention deficit or addiction or depression or these other things that will come. And then we see that young people are just so much more likely now to be anxious and depressed. But that's not bad. It's workable. And you can be very anxious and learn to turn it completely into a strength. So that's a whole other talk about anxiety itself. But that's, uh, in a way, it's the perfect case to see all of these things. And I think that young people are actually more anxious than most people know. And they're just avoidant of effort and of shame. And they're easily embarrassed. But all that is fine. We can help them to learn to welcome those feelings, but to discover that they can grow in ways they never thought was possible. When you're saying all of these things, I think, so I'm, I'm putting myself in our families and things. I think you've just laid out a path to holiness and to, <laughs> and to meeting our Lord, you know, to, to being part of that. So, and I think you've already kind of given us this, but so that sounds, it sounds great. It sounds like, but, but what, what should I do right away? I mean, how do I, what should I do today to, or what, how, how do I make this happen in my life? Yeah. So I would just say at some point you're going to be doing some next activity. The ordinary thing is work as usual, right? The saints never worked as usual. For them, everything was deliberately polished and and, and God was found and loved in every activity. I think the saints would do more deliberate acts, you know, in, you know, before they brush their teeth in the morning, you know, than many of us would do in, in a month, right? It's like, I think that they were deliberately actually loving. Love is always deliberate. So instead of just diving in to start a task, to get it done, find a way to at least once a day pause and then ask, like, how could this bring out my best? What's one thing that with God's help, I could stretch myself to attain so that I have something I'm stretching for in this, right? And then to let your attention settle there for at least an exhale. It doesn't take long, but it's a powerful thing of learning to start practicing reframing and mindfulness and setting a challenge. Okay, that already is doing what I call a golden hour. It could be if you're commuting on your way home, if your people work outside the home, then to be doing this, treating your first hour when you're home with your family as a golden hour. 
what quality would you want to surprise your family with? How cheerful you are, how interested you are, how understanding, how patient, but then see, okay, I get ready to embrace the challenge of living that ideal in advance, you know, and try to have some moments of silence then just to experience the presence of God as you go into that moment. So it only takes a moment to sanctify things in advance, but we just never do it. We just go through doing things as usual, which is understandable because we have a lot to get done. And modern life is very busy and people are extremely, they feel tempted to multitask. <clears throat> I don't believe in multitasking. I believe in sequential unitasking, even if it's quick. <laughs> so quick switching, but it's but not to divide the attention. So we can learn then, as long as there are these ideals we're kind of stretching ourselves for, in fact, we can attain flow in the most ordinary situations of life. And that allows us then to keep the intention alive in our heart and to keep the presence of God centered there. So while we do these things, it just takes some practice learning to do it, but it can't be a theory. It has to be practiced and then we get better and better at it. One of the things that just immediately stood out as you're giving that advice is going back to that writing the JMJ at the top of the paper or prayers before meals. In every Colby class, we we open with a prayer and it's easy to get in the, we, this is what we do before we start this thing. But if we can start in those moments where we're naturally pausing, where we've taught ourselves yeah. to pause, but to reflect on what you've just talked about here, to change that from being, I do this so I get to the next thing, even though this is giving glory to God in some way, yeah. but stop and build those into our day and then try to build that into stopping to pray before I do, or that moment of, and that's what you've been talking about the whole time. It all, it's, it's there, right? Yeah. So it's interesting that if, if you could have awe just from looking at a raisin, <laughs> um, how much more can you have awe in considering what a task, you know, can hold, you know, and, and all the love that it can hold, but even more when you consider the meaning of the words of a prayer or our Lord in the Eucharist, or the reality of Our Lady, that it's healthy that we learn to engage those truths of the faith with a pause so that we can actually incite awe in it. And we and even if you did that once a day, that would be a very solid way of growing. So to slow down slightly sometimes, to do something very intentionally, if you're praying the rosary, if you were to slow down to just one Hail Mary each decade to do it really intentionally. So blessed Elvira del Portillo, that's what he recommended. And he said, it, he said, not only will you pray the rosary better, but you'll have greater presence of God all day long. And I think that's true that you like, you learn to slow down, do little things with a little more love. So, and then that actually keeps the fire alive. And that's kind of like just keeping the fire going through small things that you love, like small crosses you lovingly embrace. They just keep throughout the day embracing these little challenges. It keeps us psychologically in flow, but is open to so much more with grace. It seems like the the idea of recollecting oneself, like the, and I find myself kind of thinking about this kind of bubbles to the surface sometimes. And other times I'm quite intentional about thinking about it, especially um, after uh, preparing for something like this or, or even catching your podcast episodes. It's so much preferable. I find my, you know, I can 
how many times have I just kind of rushed headlong into like all the things. And then I'm like, the time went and it did not go well. And then I come away from that thinking, how can I make that better? I think that here you're laying out how we can, mm-hmm. how we well, can have, afterwards yeah, grow from that. All you need to do is to offer the desire that it would have been better. Yeah. And I think that okay. can have as much value because it's the same charity. It can be retrospective or prospective. So I think we can retroactively elevate things. So I uh, don't have that from Aquinas, but I, I think I think it's pretty solid that um, because I think that's what we do at the end of our life. We want to retroactively offer God all the love and glory that we wished we could have offered him in this life. And that would be the best way to die. So it has, I think it has to be true. Uh, the other thing is that the faith grows in us by being exercised in the reframe. And so the more it grows through the reframe, I believe the more it can be exercised in then in petition and it can obtain by asking. So it's on the one hand, a passive acceptance of light and seeing things in, in, you know, from the perspective of how God would see this for you. But that very thing merits an increase in faith in us and faith gives us an asking power to obtain more light and more fire of love and you know more grace for what we need to do so that we actually desire higher things more and ask God to help us to do it. It's a beautiful thing that Thomas Aquinas, when he faced a problem in his work, in his teaching and writing, that he would have such strong and childlike desires that he would go to the tabernacle, rest his head on it, and weep, asking for light, like begging God for light. So, And then he would get the light. So we think of him as the angelic doctor, as if everything was just revealed to him in his angelic intellect. But he also strove and asked. So I think he exercised faith in so many of these ways. You know, it's speculative, it's practical, and it's desirous. It's like able to obtain things. Something that stood out there was too about how, when you like, you, when you're talking about how you wish, yeah, that you could retroactively kind of think about those things and I, I just think about when we do fall and we sin how what a better way that is to kind of immediately reframe and not think about oh i was horrible i didn't you know i failed again and I, you know i keep doing this it's the same things i confess every time i go to confession but to think about i w- want this i want to do this for that's what i would have done in this thing and that's what i'm going to do going forward so it's not yeah not, and not we see from- it in any human relationship too, that if you're married, wouldn't you want your spouse to present to you their desire that they had actually loved you maximally and better all the years you've been together? And then you would receive it, not from them only as love, but also as humility. So as generosity, as sincerity, it would have all these, I mean, it'd be, it'd be even more beautiful. And that's true at a human level. It's true even more at the divine level. And so at the end of things, we can also, we can beforehand have high hopes for what we want to do and how much we want to love God by doing this at our very best. You know, again, I think if Catholics understood the daily cross to be embraced in work, we would be exceeding ourselves continually in the progress we make in our work. So something too, I think that we all need to be very convinced that we need to continually be growing. Any task that we do every day we can do it better. And that's what love would entail. 
Love entails an exceeding of oneself, a growing, trying to be more generous, with more care, with more intensity of focus. All these, all these ideals just become ways of loving. And then that makes our work better and better and better. So like it would be if we don't actually use virtues to the degree that we have them, then we start to lose them. And that means that in everything we do, like, so when I'm as a psychiatrist, I have to be working constantly to be better as a psychiatrist, doing better psychiatric work. So, you know, and at this, you know, there's an interior spiritual dimension to that, but there's also then a secular dimension to that. I was just doing the best work possible. That there's having a sense of integrity in one's work, that we don't allow ourselves to cut corners and to do things in a kind of lackluster way. I think that's such an important concept for like to people to see. That's t- that's like the living of the faith day by day. So how that how then do we guard against perfectionism in that pursuit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think perfectionism is a defense against shame. People want to do things to achieve perfect outcomes. So but the outcomes then are like an end in themselves. And if they're attained, they only give momentary reassurance and it wears off. So it's never good enough. That's different than looking at the process of working, how we do things. So trying to do things better than we did them before, trying to do things in a new and better way. Perfectionism actually tends to be rote. People don't innovate. They're act- it's anti-creative. So it's just getting things done more efficiently because perfectionism is always like also a cult of efficiency. So we need to be a little bit less efficient. So I, I don't think you can live in the presence of God and have greater than 90% efficiency. So you have to learn to be somewhat inefficient in how you do things. Don't have everything too tightly scheduled. You need little moments of breathing you know, don't have back-to-back meetings. You need little moments of breathing. So you, you try to find all these ways to just gently have more space so that you can actually rest slightly between sprints of work. But anyway, perfectionism is all about outcomes and it's rote. Uh, and the intention, if anything, is really to protect against shame. That, that has no reference then to our Lord saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. When he's talking about aiming for a perfection in love, um, you know, you think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You think of the Beatitudes. These are inexhaustible things. So our Lord knows they're inexhaustible. He's not saying check those boxes perfectly, but these are the things to tend toward. They're process goals, not outcome goals. And that's true of every ideal, every gift, every Beatitude. So we make progress towards them, but we never can attain them. And there again, we need to come to some degree of acceptance of that, probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so we use outcomes only for the sake of ideals and these other things that we can grow in to love with. So yeah, like if you wanted, I don't know, to um you, know, you could think of a spouse trying to like take especially good care of painting the fence to delight his wife, let's say. Okay, well, then that would be the motive for doing it. So the perfectly painted fence is not the end. So in fact, there's something deeper, which is the generosity. He's doing this as an act of generosity with his family or with his wife. 
So, uh, so like we always have to think of what's the real end. Outcomes are means, but God and the virtues are actually ends in a sense. Okay, so much more to think about. This is what a gift today. Um, so I back backing up a little bit to the complaining piece. I've I've heard you speak about complaining, and and there's I can draw a connection with that to the start of our conversation. The these episodes when I ask Stephen for his good word, I listened to a different podcast episode about complaining and having how to overcome that. And the guest told a story about a man he knew who would who would open conversations with that. What's a good word? We're going to start and it could be an actual word. It could be something good going on, some kind of some kind of positive note. Let's start on the positive note there and um not not overly kind of saccharine um phony positivity, but it, um the toxic positivity in a way, but that's Exactly. That's why people have to guard against. Yeah, mm-hmm. that we're not we're not saying to pretend everything is okay. Right, yeah. The reframe has to be more true. And that then the so reframe is the opposite of complaining. Complaining is a tightening of attention onto just one negative aspect. But the reframe is a widening of attention, the widening of the context. It's actually more true. It's really been really helpful to me to the idea of reframing and to uh, acknowledge some anxiety I'm having as a, an opportunity for growth that really has been yeah. significant for me. Well, coming out soon on Optimal Work is an entirely new kind of masterclass just on anxiety. So on Optimal Work, I have this masterclass, which is, I don't know, 50 or so short lessons to give the complete picture of, and the way of, of growing that, um, that I've developed. And then coming out soon is the one on just on anxiety, which I really hope will be a game changer for anyone who struggles with anxiety or has loved ones who do. I think of uh, anxiety as being, um, in some ways, just the model opportunity. Yeah. Um, tell us more about Optimal Work and your offerings there. Yeah. Optimal Work is kind of my online presence that teaches people a whole theory of how to grow. Like, And so we talk about reframing and mindfulness and challenge and what does real flourishing mean and how these relate um, to self-mastery. So how do you master your attitude? How do you master your attention? And then how do you master crafting your actions? But that's reframing mindfulness challenge. But then we have a whole deeper dive into um, threats and opportunities and all everything about anxiety in a nutshell. Uh, and then there's another one which is all about attention, another topic, just focusing on attention. And another one on ideals and bonds. And so this is all built into what's called a master class, which is like what lays out the whole theory of growth. Um, we also have tools to help people grow. There's an, uh, there's an exercise called true success, which we could talk about at another time. Uh, I mentioned the reframer, the golden hour. So it's just different ways of preparing your mind for an hour of work with different flavors, depending on how you want to focus it. And then there's also something there called the inventory. The inventory is something that I came up with as a measure of how people are engaging challenge in their life in different areas. So it's about a third the deal with attitude, a third deal with attention, and a third deal with action. Uh, and it's a measure of how are people flourishing in life. So now on Optimal Work, when you take the inventory, we will give you specific little three-minute bits of advice 
like it could be one each day if you're doing it Monday through Friday, to help you to grow in that point. And then every time you take the inventory, you'll see the progress you make. You'll see the kind of the graph of how you're improving. And you'll also then get new pieces of advice. And we have an algorithm that tries to most intelligently serve up the advice. And that's where, in fact, where we're working a lot on improving is how do we use AI to come up with the best path to progress for people just based on their inventory. But we've had like well over 30,000 inventories now, and which is a lot of data, 24 items times 30,000, it's giant data. And so in fact, we've been able to do all these things to, to actually statistically verify the validity of it. Uh, and it's a very robust instrument. So it's exciting. Um, yeah. I hope that this will be used in studies. Uh, and it's like, uh, it takes us a few minutes to take, but in a way, it doesn't talk about anxiety directly, at least not much. It doesn't talk about depression, doesn't talk about addiction. But the higher the score in the inventory people get, the less they are struggling with those things in their ordinary life because they're building up these habits bit by bit of reframing and mindfulness and embracing challenges. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a new way of helping people grow. I'm hoping that with optimal work, people who wouldn't otherwise go to therapy or don't have access to great therapy, or they don't know if they can trust the therapist, here they're getting the best teaching, more or less personalized, um, you know, uh, for them. So that's that's my hope is that it'll be able to serve. And it's, it's been a wonderful experience. We've served many, many thousands of people and we have uh, wonderful users who are very grateful. So, Is it appropriate for, uh, what's the minimum age? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, we have had super users as early as age, um, well, 10th grade. Okay. Uh, and, and so there are people who said that their life was completely changed, uh, when they were in 10th grade. Uh, and, uh, in fact, we have someone who interns for us now named Rosie, just phenomenal. And she's been a bit with us now for, for, she's now in college. So it's, uh, it's been exciting to like, be accompanying her and she's actually helping us to develop a high school masterclass or some kind of high school curriculum, um, she and Sharif think that it would be best for this to be not online, but to be a, like some kind of book that then people would work through. Um, and so she's been developing this, but it could also be used in a classroom setting with some video components um, that could be like a complement to any other kind of high school curriculum. Uh, because she had this great experience in high school, she's very eager to help us tailor it to high school students. What a, what a gift, what a gift to have, to give a student and for them to carry with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the best thing about Optimark has been the people that it puts us in touch with and, and the people who become like our, our super users and stuff, they're just phenomenal people. And so it's been, a, it's been, it's been, it's been very, very exciting to, to see that. And uh, I can't say enough great things about Sharif Yunus, who's my, my uh, co-founder there and uh, one of the most impressive people I've met. So, uh, and so I'm just lucky to have the team that I have. Uh, and he's your co-host on the podcast, the, the yeah. Optimal Work Podcast. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He asks all the questions. I give the answers, but uh, he could give the answers too. We've just gotten <laughs> into this, we've gotten into this kind of rhythm and, but he uh, makes sure that I also make, like get out the points that he thinks are important. So 
Yeah, he's uh, he's probably he's been the person who has been most helpful in the developing of the whole the yeah the whole theory of growth. Yeah, and and he's has a very systematic mind. He has a knack for parallelisms and how things. And so he's been he was invaluable with the master class. So he wrote that with me. So the Optimal Work website, the Optimal Work podcast. You have your own personal website that has a ton of resources on it as well. Are there other resources that haven't come up yet that you wanted to mention? I have a website also called Purity is Possible. Um, and that's an older version. I think of Optimal Work actually as, dare I say it, Purity is Possible 2.0. Okay. <laughs> because we don't talk about purity directly, but we're teaching people self-mastery. And we know from abundant experience that it helps in that area. Wow. So it's actually a path out of problems that doesn't have to address the problems directly. Now, even in purity is possible, you'll see there is no mention of impurity. <laughs> so there's I don't talk about it at all. You know, and uh and there's it's not directly faith-based in any way. And you can talk about purity from a purely human point of view, and that's what I do in that website which even Catholics who have used it have appreciated because it grounds it in a different, it's a different approach and it doesn't have, um, it's not, it, you know, I, I don't know. I think it, it, it has its pluses and its minuses, but I think it's, uh, anyway, so period is possible is, is another one, but I think optimal work is much more powerful at actually helping people to grow. Period is possible is totally free though. Okay. Well, we'll have links for all of this in our show notes. And yes, I, I, I very much value the way that you present it. And, and even for people of faith, as you said, folks have different are in different places, have different experiences of uh, faith and religion. So to be able to present the material um, with that underpinning, of course, it runs right through it, but it isn't the overt discussion of it, I think, can help folks who would, are not open as yet to that part of that part of it. Yeah. Exactly. Meet people where they're at and then help them as much as you can. That's been the idea. Been wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Majors, for coming to talk to us. I hope we get to visit again. I really appreciate all of your work. Well, it's been great talking to you all. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to the Colby Cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, St. Ignatius of Loyola, Holy Saints and Angels, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.